Thanks for tuning in to the Follow Church weekly message. Our hope and prayer is that you will find this message uplifting and challenging as we seek to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. So if you want to open up your Bibles, Acts chapter 9, and I'm going to be reading through verses 1 to 19, or you can follow with me from up on the screen if you prefer that. Meanwhile... Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They had heard a sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and placed his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings And to the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up. And was baptized. And after drinking some food, he regained his strength. Amen. Well, it's good to have the process out of the way. So, where things I'm more excited about, like personal change and preparing our hearts for change. Today is last week of Vision Series. Um, As I said before, it's been called Change for Growth. And I'm sure for some of you, when we talked about a vision series on change, you're a little bit scared about it. Uh, I hope it hasn't been as scary as you thought it would be. Uh, Who here has found it helpful? Yeah, some of you have found it helpful. That's good. I hope really that you found it helpful whether you are naturally a change embracer or whether you're more likely to have a default position of um, kind of avoiding change. I hope wherever you are on that spectrum that there's been things within this series that you've found helpful. I pray it's got you thinking about personal change and what the Holy Spirit is stirring in your life in terms of change for growth. Maybe it's realigning your vision to make sure that Jesus is the number one focus of your life. Or perhaps it's confronting a bad habit 
or sin in your life. Maybe this year you've been challenged to start a new discipline. Or maybe 2019 is the year that God is asking you to step out in faith in greater ways into that place of godly chaos where you need to trust him in deeper ways. Perhaps you are one of those people, the 3% that's enjoyed hearing a bit more about process and how that can make a difference for mission. Or maybe your challenge is to grow as a disciple of Christ in the area of radical, willing and joyful generosity as we discussed last week. Perhaps for some of you, the biggest change this month has been to change the way you think about change, to stop seeing it as an enemy and to start seeing it as a friend. And if that's a shift that's occurred in your mind in the last month, let me tell you, that could be one of the most pivotal shifts in your life. That could change the trajectory of your life if you start to understand that change can actually be an amazing thing. So we don't have to change. We get to change because God's not finished with us yet. We don't have to change, but we get to change because God's not finished with us. Discipleship is a lifelong pursuit, and it's an endless journey of change in our lives through the power of the Word, through the work of Jesus, through the accountability of Christian community, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so today, in the last week for Change for Growth series, we're talking about preparing for change. And so, so far in week one, we talked about personal change. Week two, we talked about process change. Week three, we talked about place change. Today, we're talking about preparing for change. And so why is it important that we talk about preparing for change? Well, it's important because if we don't prepare for change, it's very unlikely to happen. It may just be another year that we go through the motions. It may be another year of missed opportunities. And so it's so important that we prepare our hearts for what God wants to change in us for growth in 2019. And so the title of my message today is Don't Forget the Cat. Don't forget the cat. And so I want to start by telling you two stories about cats. One is for the cat lovers because some people love cats, don't they? In fact, some people go a little bit crazy about cats. Uh, My auntie is one of those and she's here, so I won't say any more about that. But I remember a a particular episode on The Simpsons a number of years ago where Lisa Simpson was working as a junior reporter and she stood at the front of a suburban household and as the camera rolled, she said, they call her the cat lady. People say she's crazy just because she has a few dozen cats. But can anyone who loves animals that much really be crazy? And as she finished the sentence, a crazy cat lady comes out and starts throwing cats at her. And so I think she got her answer that particular day. Some people love cats. They even go a little bit crazy about cats. But there are certainly probably just as many who don't love cats. I've heard some people say the only good cat is a... And I won't you know, finish the sentence because it's not very nice. But you know how the saying goes. I remember a number of years ago, we had a new puppy, and his name, her name was Buffy. She was an American staffy. And we took her to the vet, and I remember the vet saying to me, oh, Buffy the vampire slayer. And I said, no, Buffy the cat slayer. And he said, that's not very nice. They're people's pets, you know. And I thought, mental note, new vet. And uh, that was the last time I ever went there, because he couldn't take a joke. But I'm going to be up front. I'm definitely a dog person. Um, I don't hate cats, but I don't particularly love them either. But when I first met Kim, I remember they had an awesome cat at their house. And so this is the good cat story. It was this really big cat. It was white with shiny fur and a big black tail. And it was a cat called Possum. And Possum would follow you around everywhere. Possum was affectionate, friendly. He was always happy to see you. Possum would come and sit with you on the couch and watch the footy, all while appearing to genuinely enjoy your company. As I was thinking about it this week, Possum was an awesome cat because possum was like a dog. (laughs) 
But if you love cats, I want you today to remember possum. The second story is for people who don't love cats so much, and you've, some of you have heard it before. It's the story of a cat called Pudpud. It was our next-door neighbour's cat. And like possum, Pudpud was a great cat at first. And she would come and say hi, and she would rub up against your leg, and she was like the friendly neighbourhood cat. That is, until she became the psycho neighbourhood cat. She had a go at both of my brothers first. I think she bit one and scratched the other. And to be honest, that didn't change my opinion of her because, frankly, my brothers could be annoying. And so I thought that's kind of fair enough. Until one day I went to pat Pudpud, the uh, friendly neighbourhood cat, but I found out that it was now definitely the psycho neighbourhood cat because it bit me as well. And so here I was thinking it was just a friendly cat with a good judge of character, but I found out it actually wasn't friendly at all. And so it bit me and it sort of drew some blood and then it ran off into our backyard. And so I went inside to my dad, and I said, Dad, the, the cat's bitten me. And like any loving Christian role model, he said, I'm going to get rid of that cat once and for all. <laughs> and I think he meant he was going to scare it off so it doesn't come back. At least that's what I think he meant. But he went inside, and he grabbed the first thing he could find, and it happened to be a rounder's bat. If you don't know what a rounder's bat is, it's like a small cricket bat about this big. And I'll never forget this rounder's bat. It had a blue uh, grip on it. And it was a Slazinger bat, so ironically it had a picture of a big cat on it. And so with this little bat with a big image of a cat on it, Dad stormed into the backyard, and there was Pudpud just standing there staring at him. And that started a bit of a stare-off. Pudpud was staring at Dad, Dad was staring at Pudpud, and this is where real life went into slow motion. I just remember my dad going, get out. He threw his hand back like that, and he threw the bat, and I remember it in slow motion going, now, I thought he'd thrown it too far, but the problem is Pudpud was running away towards the back fence, and so the timing was actually perfect, and so Dad threw the bat at the cat, and the bat hit the cat, and the cat went splat when it was hit by the bat, and that was that. <laughs> that sentence was the longest part of my sermon prep all week. But on the positive note, Pudpud was definitely scared off, and I can say with even more certainty she was never coming back, and the neighbourhood was once again safe. My dad was a hero but it made for an awkward conversation with the old lady next door as to how her, do her cat had deceased in our backyard. That's the story of two cats. And if you've got a cat, don't invite Dad over. <laughs> One for the cat lovers and a story for those that don't love them so much. So if you're a cat lover, remember Possum. If you're a dog lover, remember Pudpud. Today our focus is on preparing for change and we're using the acronym CAT. And so whatever you do this morning, don't forget the cat and there's little chance that you can forget the cat now. So don't forget the cat. What does the acronym CAT stand for? Well, change, as we've discussed in this series, is discipleship. And if we're going to change for growth, we need to consider, we need to assess, and we need to take action. We need to consider, we need to assess, and we need to take action. And so as we work through these three steps, when preparing for change, we are exploring a story that we briefly touched on in week one. It's the story of Saul's conversion. Now, most of us would realize that Saul was a man who eventually changed his name to Paul, and he became the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He was an amazing man of God. But when we first meet him in Scripture, he was certainly not that man. He was not a follower of Jesus. In fact, he was the exact opposite. In week one, we considered his life at that particular time, and I concluded that he was living in the place of ungodly chaos. He was full of anger and rage and hate. He was on a journey to persecute, throw in prison, and maybe even kill Christians. 
You would have seen this in verse 1 that Hayden read this morning. It tells us that Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And so in today's text, he's on the road to Damascus. It's a 40 to 50 hour journey on a pretty rugged road by foot, which shows how determined and full of hate he actually was. And so before he heads off on this journey, he goes to the high priest and he gets him to write a whole bunch of letters for the synagogues in Damascus. So when he arrives in Damascus, he can give these letters over and the letters were giving him permission that wherever he found Christians, he could take them as prisoners and bring them back to Jerusalem to be persecuted, thrown in prison or perhaps even killed. And so this was his mission. And so he heads off on this journey of hate. And he's almost arrived there. And in verse 3, it says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. For the first time, Saul had to consider what was happening in this moment and in his life. And so the first part of our acronym towards change is the word consider. And so for each of these words, I've also put a subheading for that word that describes the God work that needs to happen in our lives as we do each of these steps. And so the God work in this particular step of considering is the work of conviction. God needs to convict us. In John 16, before Jesus was arrested, he told his disciples that he had to go. In other words, he had to be arrested, crucified, resurrected, and eventually he would ascend to heaven and leave his disciples here on earth. Now, you can imagine for the disciples, that would be enough to make them pretty apprehensive. Here's Jesus, the Son of God, this uh, man they followed for three years. They put all their trust in him. They thought all this great stuff was going to happen on earth in that particular time. And then the one they're putting all their faith in, Jesus, the Son of God, their leader, says, I'm going to go. I'm out of here. And I'm going to leave you here on earth by yourselves. And so they were apprehensive. But in John 16, Jesus alleviates their anxiety by promising them that they won't be left alone. In John 16, 8, he says, and when I'm going to send you a helper, and when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so they're not going to be alone. They're going to have the Holy Spirit, but part of the work of the Holy Spirit is that he's going to convict people on sin and also righteousness. And so they'll be convicted on the right way to live, but they'll also be convicted on sin in our lives. And so it's conviction on sin and righteousness. Now, to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit is to acknowledge the truth that we haven't made it yet. If you're here today and you're breathing breath, you are a work in progress. You're not who you used to be, but you're still not yet who you're going to be. And so we are a work in progress all the time. And, and some people, that's a little bit you know, nerve-wracking. Oh, God's going to change me. For me, it's really exciting. I think it's exciting to declare that this time next year, I'm going to be more like Jesus than I am right now. It's an awesome declaration, isn't it? That the Holy Spirit would be convicting us, challenging us, transforming us from the inside out to make us more like Jesus. I think that's incredibly exciting. And I don't know about you, but I have noticed the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life over many years. And usually he convicts me on something, and then I start to work on that with God's help and the power of the gospel, and I start to repent and I get forgiven, I start to work through that. And I think, great, I've kind of got on top of that. And then all of a sudden, something else pops up, right? 
You're like, okay, now I've got to work on that. And so you start working on that, and then that last thing pops up again. And then there's something else, and then there's something else. And, and this is the, the work of the Holy Spirit convicting and changing us. It's what the Bible calls sanctification. And sanctification is an incredibly important process in our lives. It's the ongoing work of the Spirit of God to change us to become more like Jesus. This is why change is discipleship, and discipleship is change. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, we first need to consider what he's saying. For Saul, on the road to Damascus, it caused him to consider or reconsider his life and mission when Jesus appeared to him. Saul had been heading down one road in his life, and it was taking him in a particular direction away from God. But then, the whole, then Jesus appears and convicts him, and he's got to consider the possibility of another road that will take him in a very different direction. And so for that to occur, he needed to consider a new way of seeing things. It's interesting that in this story, Saul was struck blind by the bright light of Jesus. So I was reading through it again this week. I wondered to myself, why is it necessary for him to become blind in this story? Was it to limit him physically so that he couldn't inflict the persecution and the pain on the people he was planning to? Was it that the holiness of Jesus just completely overwhelmed him and he couldn't hold, he couldn't hold up in the presence of Jesus and he was struck blind because he was overwhelmed? Was it to get him to stop and to take seriously the words of Christ? Or was it because he had to stop seeing things the way he'd been seeing them? I think it could be any of those things, but I've noticed in my own life that if I'm going to change, God first needs to help me to see things differently. Saul, for, for the next three days, physically could see nothing. It's interesting that Jesus was in the tomb for three days. Saul is struck blind for three days. And when Saul finally regains his physical sight, that was nowhere near as miraculous as God opening his spiritual eyes for the first time. It was a resurrection of sorts, where Saul went from being dead in his sins to becoming alive, being raised to new life in Christ through an encounter with the risen Jesus. It's an encounter that if you're a Christian, you've been through a similar thing in your own life, where you've gone from being dead in your sins and you've come to the point through the work of the Spirit in your heart that you've realized that you need a Savior. That Savior is Jesus. And so you've put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and he has created you as a new creation. And that's a wonderful thing about being a Christian. But before Saul got to that point, he had to first consider what Jesus was saying. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You know, many of us find ourselves in life, in regular patterns in our lives. Some of them are really good, good habits, good rhythms. But it's fair to say some of them aren't. Maybe it's habitual sin. Maybe it's crippling fear. It could be the thoughts we have about ourselves or about other people. Maybe it's thinking regularly that nobody likes me. I'm not good enough, I'm hopeless. And you come to church thinking, nobody's going to talk to me today. And you sit there with a scowl on your face and your arms crossed and you become part of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Maybe for others, you spend more time thinking about what you don't have rather than being grateful for the many blessings that we do have. For others, it may be spending more time gossiping than encouraging. Or it could be the way that you see people of authority in your life. Maybe it's, it's this us versus them mentality. We're always talking about the boss and how he doesn't treat you properly, how it's not right, or it's the manager, or it's the church leaders, or it's the government, or it's the police. And you're in this pattern where in your life this thing regularly repeats and you get the same results in your life because there's an unhealthy pattern of thinking that has become normal for you. Maybe like Saul, God uh, at the start of this year wants to wipe clean the way you're seeing things so he can wake you up to a new vision in life 
and a new way of seeing things. You see, I'm absolutely convinced that God wants each of us to change for growth. And so I wonder whether this series has caused you to consider things in your life in a new way. I wonder, is God renewing your mind? Is God convicting you or challenging you in ways that have made you consider or reconsider aspects of your life or your thoughts or your faith? Has he shown you things to consider when it comes to change for growth? Because if we're going to change for growth, we need to be open to God's work of conviction, which makes us consider what he's saying. And if he is, if you're feeling and sensing that at the moment, it's a great start to a new year, but it's also a good thing to remember that considering is not enough. We need to consider, but we also need to assess. We need to consider what the Lord is saying, and then we need to assess, and we need to be self-aware enough to assess our lives and what God may be seeing to us. Now, I can only imagine what was going through Saul's mind as he was led blind in Damascus, and he remained blind for those three days. But I'm pretty sure there would have been a lot of assessment going on in his mind. You see, what Saul had always seen, what he'd always believed, and what he'd always done had got him to where he was. But it wasn't going to take him to where God was calling him to go. Let me say that again. What Saul had always seen, what he'd always believed, and what he'd always done had got him to where he was, but it wasn't going to take him to where God was calling him to go. And it may be the same for some of us today, that what we've always seen, what we've always thought, what we've always believed, what we've always done, it's got us to where we are, but it's not going to get us to where God wants us to go. And so we need to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit when he convicts us to consider what he's saying and then assess what's happening in our lives. Saul needed a new vision. God had convicted him. He had to consider Jesus' words. And now he had to assess his life. And he had to assess pretty much everything. The beliefs he'd always had about Christians and about Jesus. He had to assess what it would cost to follow him. He had to assess what would happen to his friends, his family, his reputation, his career path. All that stuff he had to consider, what would happen if he became a follower of Jesus? You know, in the Bible, it mentions being a Christian three times. But it mentions being a disciple over 260 times. You know, a disciple is a disciple. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. And so when the Holy Spirit convicts us and we have to assess our lives, we need to assess whether we're in fact following Jesus. And so after conviction, as we assess our lives... The God works in our lives, and the God work that needs to happen is the work of humility. We need to be people who have humility. 1 Peter 5 verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Humble yourselves. As we humble ourselves, it's God's job to exalt us. God exalts the humble, and he humbles the proud. But if we take God's job and we exalt ourselves, then God will take our job, and he will humble us. And what you need to know about God is when he does something, he does it very thoroughly. And so you're much better off humbling yourself and allowing God to exalt you than exalting yourself and enabling God to humble you, because that is a painful experience, and I think most of us have been through it at different times of our life. And so the God work that needs to happen as we assess our lives is the work of humility. Humility was the posture of Jesus, and it should be the posture of his followers. As the Holy Spirit convicts us and we assess our lives, it will take humility, and that's hard because we often respond to conviction, not with humility, but with 
defensiveness. Instead of being humble and going, yes, there's some things that need to change, we tend to get defensive. We shift the blame. We say, for me, that's not an issue. I didn't do it. I don't need to change. We blame someone else. We deflect the blame. But if we're truly going to change, we need to change our default position from defensiveness to humility. This is what needs to happen in our lives if we're going to see change occur. That's the posture of humility in which God works most powerfully. Let me say that. It's the posture of humility in which God works most powerfully. I had to talk to someone on a phone this week and they were talking to about an issue that they had with me and it was hard to hear. It's always hard to hear when someone brings up something in your life where it's not where you want it to be. And I'll tell you why it was the hardest to hear. Because it was true. It's always hardest to hear when you know it's true. And I reckon five or ten years ago, I would have got defensive straight away. I would have shifted blame. I would have justified by comparison. Uh, But I'm a work in progress, and I like to think that I'm growing, changing for growth. And so this time, I didn't do any of that. I just heard them out, and I took responsibility. I apologized, and I'm asking God to help me get better in that particular space in my life. You see, when it comes to sanctification, conviction and humility actually have to go hand in hand. For sanctification to occur, conviction and humility need to go hand in hand. If you have all conviction and no humility, or all humility and no conviction, you'll get no sanctification. If you have all humility and no conviction, that's simply because your name's Jesus. Because he's the only one ever that didn't have sin in his life. And so he didn't need to be convicted on his sin because... He was perfect. But for the rest of us, and this might be a news break for some of us, we're not Jesus, right? We haven't made it. We're still being changed by the power of the Holy Spirit all the time. And so there should be conviction in our lives. And so if you're all humility and no conviction, you're Jesus. But if you're all conviction and no humility, you'll be defeated, or even worse, you'll become proud, which is the opposite of humility. God humbles those that are proud. Pride causes us to harden our hearts, we stop hearing from God, we close ourselves off to others in community and we become bitter. Can I beg you this morning, don't allow conviction to turn you into someone who's bitter. Allow God to make you better. As he convicts you and as you receive that through humility, it's a wonderful thing to have God working in our lives. And so conviction and humility need to go hand in hand for sanctification to occur. And so once God convicts us, we need to be humble enough to assess our lives. Last week I was at a church plant coaching day in the city and I had a seminar that I was at and I got handed a diagram which is going to come up on the screen. I need to apologise because it's very unclear and you probably can't read it, but I'll walk you through it. Um, I I could be speaking in tongues for all you know up there. You, You can't read it. If you're an interpreter, you'll be able to know what to do. But basically this is a diagram that they handed me and I'll talk you through it. There's three columns, vertical columns, on the right-hand side, and they are security, comfort, and approval. And at the top, it says uh, common issues or common um, idols for church planners. Let's just take out the word church planners, and let's just put Christians. Common idols for Christians, security, comfort, approval. And so I got this sheet of paper in front of me, and I started reading through it. And I looked through the comfort one, and I thought, no, that's not really a huge issue for me. I looked through the security one. That's not a huge issue for me. I looked at the approval one, and it was like I was looking at a mirror, and I was looking back at myself. 
I realized that, yeah, approval is a big issue in my life. The need for approval is a problem or an idol that I have in my life. But the thing that pleased me about it is it's something that I'd identified about two years ago. And so let me read through some of the stuff it says there. Go to the next screen. Approval, definition. I believe that I am whole when others respect me, approve of me, and grant me worth. Personal aspect. The physically fit, right look, the cool church planner. Well, I don't like that one because I can't help being cool, but <laughs> we'll tick it anyway, all right? Third one, spiritual aspect. Pride and obedience and being a risk taker. The relational aspect, tick. People saying you're wonderful, reputation of being perfect, tick. The missional aspect, that you're a great preacher, you recognition as a church, you're a planter, a key leader. And then when the idol is threatened, I don't know if this is an issue, but maybe it's just a blind spot, but if it's threatened, you use power or manipulation, anger or bullying, over-flattering. Paul, you look wonderful today, mate. You love those glasses. <laughs> Best-looking bloke I've ever seen. But I don't use flattering. And so I looked through this, and, and straight away I knew that was an issue that I have in my life. I'm a words of affirmation person. I have a need for approval. But I recognized it a couple of years ago. And I've actually journeyed with the elders a little bit on this. And I said, if anything's going to take me out of ministry, it's not the normal things that take people out of ministry. If anything's going to take me out, it's what I would term as unjust disrespect. So when someone says something about you or criticizes you for something you've done wrong, that's fair enough. I'm trying to get better at taking that on board and changing for growth. But when people do something that I term as unjust, they're the times when I feel like giving up. Just going back on the tools, running away, and just going, I can't be bothered with this anymore. It's all too hard. That has been my default response. And I've seen this in my life reoccur in a number of different times and a number of different settings over a number of different years. And I started to realize that this keeps happening for me, that when I feel like that's happening, I want to run away and give up. Now, I know most people would struggle with unjust disrespect, but I was struggling with it to the point where it's completely unhealthy, that I would fall apart when I confronted it. And I realized that this was a common reoccurrence in my life. You know, I've seen many people over years and years of uh, church ministry now, and even before that, that have these common things that happen in their life. And it happens in one place. And they, instead of looking inward, they start looking outwards. And they deflect blame, and it's everyone else, and they did it, and they said it, and it's not me. And so they, what they do is they don't take any responsibility, and usually they move on somewhere else. This is a workplace, or a church, or a whatever, at school, whatever it may be. And then they get to the next place, and, and the same thing happens again. But it's the same response. It's not me. It's everyone else. I'm just a very unlucky person who gets in these same situations over and over again. So they go to the next place, and the same thing happens again. It's not me, it's everybody else. And what I've noticed is this, that the common denominator never seems to realize it's a common denominator. And so if something keeps happening to you over and over again, either you're the most unlucky person in the history of the world, or there's something going on in your life that God's trying to confront, and you need to be willing and humble enough to go, you know what, there's something I need to change in my life. And it's so important because if you don't, you'll go through your whole life being a victim. The whole life never changing for the growth that God's prompting you for in your life. And so for me, it was this need for approval. And I realized that there was a bigger issue than just the need for approval. The bigger issue is that I'm not applying the gospel. And so I'm believing things about myself that God hasn't said, but other people have. And it hits me for six and so it's a problem with me. It's a problem down the bottom. It talks about the gospel dance. And in the people who need approval, the cycle is despair. Well, I, feel, I feel like I'm in despair. The second thing is that you want to flee. 
You run, run away because it's easy to do that. But the third thing is what I needed to do in my life. It's repentance. Lord, I'm sorry that I haven't trusted you to the level I needed to. I'm sorry that I haven't believed your words above anybody else's. And I've had to formulate sentences in my head like, like this one. I've got to put my, pillow, my head on the pillow at the end of the night and I need to know before God genuinely that I have tried to obey him every way I can with conviction and compassion. And if I can do that, I can put my head on the pillow and I can go to sleep. Now, I know that when I do that, still not everyone will be happy with me. That's just the nature of humanity, isn't it? You know, I heard someone say recently that the best pillow is a clear conscience. And I want to go to bed each night believing that I've done what I need to do before God, that, that he's happy with me because I have an audience of one. He's the one that I need to please. And so I needed to start applying the gospel to myself in greater ways. Jesus was perfect in every way. And they hung him on a cross. I'm nowhere near perfect. But I do know that my need for approval was far greater than what it should be. Now, what I love about this diagram is above, you know, two-thirds down, which you've got on the screen now, it goes from the diagnosis up the top to the solution. And so for me, a person who needs approval, I need to go back to what's the gospel promise for me? Well, the gospel promise is that God delights in me. And he's not sitting around thinking bad things about me. He loves me. And so I hold on to that. That's a truth that will change my life. What's the promise that Jesus has? Well, he's approved of me. And so I can get confidence from that. What's the reminder? That I've been declared righteous. I've got nothing to prove. Before Jesus, before God the Father, I'm declared righteous because of the work of Christ. And then what's the gospel dance? I need to remember when I get to that place of despair, not to flee, but to repent and come back to that place where I trust God. I think it's incredibly powerful. The gospel will change your life. This is what discipleship is. It's change. We need to start believing the gospel. Jesus assessed Saul's heart. The Holy Spirit assesses ours. Saul heard Jesus' voice and he embraced the need for change. He considered, he assessed, and finally he took action. Now the God work that needs to happen when we take action is the the work of discipline. If we look at the passage, Saul required conviction to kickstart change, but without humility, it would have stopped dead in its tracks. But even with conviction and humility coming together, he still needed the discipline to take action. If we look at verse 6, after being struck blind, Jesus said to Saul, now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Look at the next line. And so he did. Jesus appeared to Ananias. He told him to go and lay his hands on Saul. Ananias was a bit reluctant about that. He'd heard about Saul. He heard that he's very cruel to Christians. He was a dangerous man. He kind of questioned, am I meant to do this? But Ananias needed to change the way he thought about someone. And maybe for us this year, we need to change the way about, we think about some people in our lives. But Ananias went obediently. He laid his hands on Saul. And when he did, Saul regained his sight. And in verse 18, it said, Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. Listen to the next line. He got up and he was baptized. And in the following verses, he went into the synagogues, the same one where he was planning to arrest Christians, and he went and started to preach that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, Saul was disciplined enough to take action. You know the worst time to be a member of a gym? January. The lines are packed. You've got to wait for the equipment. There's people everywhere. Your workout takes twice as long. You've got to wipe off more sweat off all the seats. 
It's the worst time to be a gym member. I tell you the best time to be a gym member? February. It's empty again. You've got every bit of equipment to yourself. Nobody's there. It's just the regular disciplined people that are there. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? What does it tell us? It tells us that people, after eating too much at Christmas, feel convicted. It's our first point. That they need to get fit. They then assess their lives and they decide to join the gym. They take action, but they lack the discipline to follow through. And I think the truth is we could take the word gym out and we could put the word faith. It describes many of us at the start of a new year. We make goals, we have plans and resolutions, but statistics show that anywhere from 80 to 93% of all resolutions have failed by Valentine's Day, which means they're now over for those men who missed Valentine's Day. It's gone. You missed it. Dave Sleeman nodding his head. And that often includes our faith goals. I think God lays on our heart as we... He convicts us as we assess our lives. They're usually gone by February. At the start of this year, I reassessed my own life, and I realized that I needed to become more disciplined. I'm being honest with you today. I'm thinking to myself at the start of this year, if I'm going to go the distance in ministry, if I'm going to get to the end of my life and be able to say, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I kept the faith, I needed to change. In the busyness of life last year, I lacked discipline in many areas of my life. I slept too little. I exercised too little. I ate too much. I fell out of the habit of reading the word daily apart from sermon prep. And at times last year, I was nowhere near where I needed to be emotionally, physically, or even spiritually. I was on a road that was heading towards, sometime in the future, burnout. And so my overall goal in 2019 is to be more disciplined in those areas. So over summer, I was reading a book, and I was reading a book on sleep. And it was talking about the profound importance and benefits of sleep. And it showed me that I needed to change for growth. I wasn't getting enough sleep and it was impacting my life. Now, this is hard for me because I'm what uh, people call a night owl. You know, you have uh, early risers. You're here this morning. And then you have night owls. And I'm a night owl. I love staying up late. I hate going to bed early because I feel like you finally get the kids into bed. And it's my time and it's bedtime. And I hate going to bed early. And I also know for myself that I think more clearly at night. And so uh, I could keep doing what I've always been doing, but I also realized that if I kept doing the same things, this year I'd get the same results. And so I needed to make a change. So I decided that wherever possible, I sometimes have meetings that go late at night. I don't want to be legalistic about it. But wherever possible, I would go to sleep at the same time every night and wake up at the same time every morning. Now, this has become for me what Charles Dewey calls a keystone habit. A keystone habit are habits that lead to the development of multiple good habits. They start a chain effect in your life that produces a number of positive outcomes. And so I changed that one thing, sleep, which has triggered a domino effect. I go to bed earlier, which means I get up earlier, which means I walk the dog longer. While I'm walking the dog, I listen to the Bible or a podcast, so I'm learning more, which leads to more growth. Because I'm exercising more, it makes me want to eat less. Because I'm eating less, I've lost seven kilos since Christmas. I change one thing, a keystone habit, and as a result, I feel much healthier physically, emotionally, and spiritually, but it requires discipline. I've got to get up every morning. I've got to walk the dog. I've got to do those things day after day after day. I heard Craig Rochelle say recently that successful people do consistently what normal people do occasionally. Successful people do consistently what normal people do occasionally. And so if we want to keep growing in our faith, we need to be consistent in the changes that God convicts us on. I think it's so important. 
And so I changed that one thing. And I was listening to the same interview with Craig Gishel from Life Church in an interview, and he was sharing his journey over the last 30 years. And he said that 30 years ago, he realized probably he was in a similar space to me, that he wasn't disciplined enough in life. And so he was going to add one small discipline to his life every single year. And so the first year, he changed one little thing. Now, it may be something really small, like five minutes of deliberate reflection or a chapter a day of the Bible or starting the day with prayer instead of Facebook. Just a little change. He said in the first year, it didn't really feel like much changed at all. But over 30 years, year after year, a new spiritual discipline, he's a much more disciplined person. And you need to be when you're running a church of 70,000 people over 24 locations. If you're not disciplined, you're not going to be able to do that. That's what he does now. But he's an incredibly incredibly disciplined person because he's changed one little thing every year. And those consistent changes have led to growth. So when we read a story about Saul, we kind of freak out and we think, man, there's too much to change. That's overwhelming. Like I'm confronted by too many things. And sometimes you have a Saul experience and that's wonderful, that instant radical change. But more often it's those changes one by one by one by one that lead you to growing or changing for growth. The Apostle Paul was a phenomenal leader who God has used in extraordinary ways, but it all started when he was on the wrong road. It was in that place that Jesus convicted him, causing him to consider Jesus' words. He then had to humble himself and assess where his life was going. After doing that, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and we need the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh. And then he took action to become a model of godly discipline for us to learn from. I'm going to ask the music team to come forward. This is the end of our change series. But I pray that it's only just the start of genuine life change. As we obediently step out as disciples of Jesus, don't forget the cat. Consider, assess, and take action. Conviction, humility, and discipline. Thanks for listening to our message this week. If it stirred your heart and you would like to talk to someone more about it or pray with someone, please get in touch with us at info at follow.church and one of our pastoral team will get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like more information about Follow and our various ministries, including weekly service times and location, please check out our website, www.follow.church. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.